Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Life in the northwest part of California changed forever when white people flooded to the state at the time of the gold rush in the middle part of the 19th century. The 11,000 years of village community life of the native Pomo peoples who lived there without roads, without stores, where time was circular as opposed to linear, all ended abruptly. Dr. Victoria Patterson, an anthropologist based in Ukiah, California, has worked with the Pomo people for over 30 years. She has extensive information and insight into what happened in the 1850s and 1860s. We resume our discussion with Dr. Patterson in this, the second part of a two-part series originally broadcast in the winter of 1999. Tell us what happened to the traditional life of the people along the north coast of California when white people came beginning about 160 years ago. Well, as you probably know, the first uh, non-Indians to actually enter California were the Spanish missionaries who came into San Diego in about 1769 and uh, established a series of missions up the west coast of California, each one approximately a day's march apart. Um, and so the impact on Indians in this area came slowly. Um, because the not, last of the missions was uh, several days' walk from here. Yes, it was in Sonoma County, the last of the Spanish missions. And that one was built actually as a counter to another group of Europeans who had come to the North Coast in about 1811 from Russia. They had traveled south from the um, colonies they had established in Alaska. Uh, they were basically fur traders. They were looking to, to hunt uh, fur-bearing animals uh, for their pelts. And um, the, the story goes that they were looking for a place to grow grain for their Alaskan colonies, which sounds a little odd to me, but in any case, they established a, um, a tra basically a trading post uh, just below the Mendocino County line in what we now call Fort Ross which was the Kashaya Pomo village of Metini. And Kashaya is one of the seven Pomo languages, which are all mutually unintelligible. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting fact in itself. The different community languages, uh, less than a day's walk apart, were totally different. Totally different, not dialects, but literally different languages, as different as um, French from Romanian. Or some people even say French from English, you know, which is a completely different language group. In any case, they wanted to establish a bulkhead that was visible from the sea because, as you mentioned, there were no roads. And so most of the traffic in California, as we know from the old, uh, what was that two years before the mast, Richard Henry Dana, you know, right. the, the hide it's, and tallow trade was, was on the seacoast. It's what could be seen. That was the place to stop. Exactly. If it wasn't foggy. Exactly. And that is another story in itself. <laughs> um, in any case, they couldn't go to San Francisco because that was held by the Spanish. And so the Russians were looking not to, not to cause an international incident. And so they established their trading post north enough from San Francisco so it wasn't, wouldn't be looked at as a, as a threat. Um, the Spanish, seeing, seeing the uh, Russians up there, quickly put their northernmost mission in at Sonoma. 
uh, wouldn't be too close again to the Russians to create an international incident, but they were definitely keeping their eye on the situation. And that in itself is what has given us the name of, of the river that runs right through our valley here, the Russian River. Um, the first maps of this area were made in Spanish. Um, they were called diseños, and they were made by the, uh, the Spanish Mexicans by that time um, to describe the area of the land grants that were being given to various people by first the King of Spain and then by the government of Mexico. Um, the Ukiah Valley is the northernmost of the Spanish land grants. It's called the Yokeo Grant, or Yokeo Rancho, and it was named after the people who first inhabited, the, the name of the people whose homeland it was. But interestingly enough, when you see the diseño, the word Yokeo is written in Spanish. L-L-O, <laughs> no, K-A-Y-O. And um, El Rio Russo runs through that rancho, and uh, they indicate Las Lomas Muertes, and uh, El Pinal, and Las Robles de Yokeo, and so on. So um, they uh, established that land grant um, in the 1840s, and there were forays into this area, both into Lake County to Clear Lake area and into southern Mendocino County by uh, soldiers and ranchers looking for vaqueros to help them with their herds. And so the first non-native language that people from here spoke was Spanish. By vaqueros, that's where the Spanish people came and basically captured and enslaved the Pomo people or the native people and took them to work for them. Some, yes, yes. Uh, it wasn't the same kind of slavery as was practiced in the American South. Um, it was more uh, kind of an indentured labor situation. Um, many Indians l ran away, you know, from the uh, ranches. Many stayed. They liked the food. They liked the new life. They liked the new tools and implements that they were exposed to. Um, there was a lot of interchange of culture. That's very fascinating. A lot of linguists uh, look at this through language, you know, the, the new words that come into being. Um, cows were obviously a new thing in California, and the uh, Pomo word for um, for deer is pshe, and so they began to call cows pshe masan. Masan is the word for white people, which means something that's disgusting or nauseating. <laughs> so it became a white man's meat, you know. Uh, they also imitated the Spanish word vaca by calling it paca. And they created new words. A barn, the, the Pomo, central Pomo word for house is ja. And so a barn became a paca ja. Um, words for various foods became part of the Pomo language. Words for adosa for arroz and cafe for cafe and azúcar for, or suca for, for azúcar. The Pomo, central Pomo word for bread is chini. They developed suca chini, sweet bread. And so there was a great exchange of um, material products, material goods between the Spanish and, and the Pomo people. The firearms was a, you know, a, new, a new thing. Guns. Guns. Of course, the worst gift that the Spanish gave to all the Indians of California was horrendous and fatal disease. And uh, it's been estimated that during the mission period and some of the diseases moving up through this area decimated conservatively 85% of the native population. Smallpox. Smallpox, measles. diphtheria, measles, flu, um, syphilis, you know, all of these diseases for which the people here had no immunity. And very tragically, um, their, their uh, healing practices actually 
aided in the, you know, the, the, the fire-like spread of these contagious diseases, being in small enclosed sweat houses and, and sweating and, you know, being enclosed in small rooms uh, uh, help spread these diseases very rapidly. There was a very famous epidemic that was caused by a Spanish soldier coming through Kashaya. It was called the Miramontes epidemic, and he had uh, smallpox in 1834, which decimated hundreds of Indians along the route that he took traveling back to Sonoma. There was also a um, destruction of the community life. Right. The Spanish made an impact, but not a profound impact. The real shift in, in, in daily life came with the enormous influx of people during the gold rush. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine what the impact of that must have been. It, you know, tens of thousands of people from all over the world descended on California. And their in a year. In a year. a year, yes, exactly. And, and their impact was just immense. Uh, it wasn't only the sheer numbers, but their lifestyle completely uh, contradicted native lifestyle. They felt acorns were suitable food for hogs, which they raised in great quantity. Acorns were the staple food of Northern California Indians. They fenced their land. You know, they, they didn't let Indians come to traditional places to gather resources. Um, they had a very great disrespect for the Indians of California. They looked less civilized than the Indians they had seen across the plains for whom they didn't hold you know, in high Much regard. Much respect yeah. at all. And so they, you know, killed Indians for sport uh, from porches with rifles. They captured Indian women. Um, they, uh, they tried to change, in terms of mining, in terms of the technology necessary for mining, uh, they actually changed the course of rivers, you know, by putting in dams and aqueducts and, and all kinds of water um, movement systems. Uh, they built roads. They came with lots of guns. Lots of guns scared off the wildlife. And so Indians were completely cut off from their traditional food and material culture resources in a very, very short time. Sometimes I have the feeling, as I do historical research, just in Mendocino County, it was as though somebody took a giant egg beater, you know, from the sky, just jammed it down and went like this, whirling around and spread people out, you know, chopping them up and spewing them everywhere. And uh, after um, about 1853 or 54, uh, you hear stories about Indians wandering up and down the Russian River, just like you hear about Europeans wandering around in Europe after the, after the war, looking for relatives, looking for a place to live, looking for a place to stay. Um, and they followed the river because that was the course that they knew there were no roads. Also, there wasn't a lot of settlement along the rivers. You know, people didn't claim that as private property necessarily because of the flooding and the unpredictability of the water. So it was, uh, you know, the one sort of little tiny piece of land. They also established what archaeologists call refuge communities high up in the mountains. And I've been to some of these places in Mendocino County where in a really, really remote part of the forest on the top of a mountain ledge, there's a house pit. And there's evidence that not only was it inhabited um, before, uh, before uh, 1850, but then you see evidence of occupation after that in this remote area with belt buckles or buttons or soles from shoes you know, embedded into the site. Where people could go for safety and security. They hid. They hid in the mountains. They hid in the mountains because they couldn't survive. Now, you know, lots of people think 
mistakenly, very mistakenly, that there are no Indians left to speak of in Mendocino County. Well, I am very happy to attest to the fact that there are lots of Indians still here. And that to me is a miracle of human survival, an absolute miracle and a wonderful testament to the strength of the human spirit. I want you to tell us about that survival and the processes of it. But first I want to tell our listeners that I'm talking with Dr. Victoria Patterson, an anthropologist who has worked with Native people for over 30 years and has extensive information and insight into what happened when white people came to the northern part of Northern California as an offshoot of the gold rush about 150 years ago and how it changed the life of the people who lived here forever. How were the native people who have evolved in the six to seven generations since white people came been able to save the roots and the traditions and the elements of their culture? Well, fortunately, Pomo people in particular have historically been very adaptable. Because of the diversity of their language, for example, Many people were bilingual or trilingual or quadrilingual, so learning a new language was very easy, was nothing new. And many people quickly learned English. And oddly enough, they, they learned very complex English, the English of contracts and treaties and you know, a lot of legal <laughs> terminology. It wasn't necessarily uh, the language of English literature, but it was the knowledge of, of, of English-speaking law and, and uh, police activity and so on. And they were able to learn this from a memory point of view, yes, since their <laughs> language was not written. Exactly. So they didn't read, but they learned the oral English exactly. and the complexities and intentions. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the strangest uh, things that happened here was a, a group of treaty makers sent by the United States government came through California, especially Northern California, in 1851. It's called the McKee Expedition. And their goal was to sign treaties with the Indians of California, asking them to give up their lands and retire to a series of reservations that would be financed by the U.S. government. These reservations would provide uh, farming equipment, uh, livestock, teachers, doctors, and so on. And just prior to this, the year before, there had been a terrible massacre in Clear Lake by the garrison from Sonoma that came up and murdered a whole village. And whether it was that or some, some foreboding of what the future might hold, the tribes in this area, uh, seven of them, signed the treaty, which is um, you know, available to, to be read. The treaty is written in very complex government language. English. In English. Um, the treaty makers didn't speak any Pomo languages. And so the story is that there were some Pomo people who spoke Spanish and another Pomo language. And I think one of the treaty people maybe, have, maybe spoke a little Spanish along with his English. So this complex English was translated into some kind of Spanish, which was then translated into two or three Pomo languages. Orally translated, Orally translated with no written, no written thing. No written documentation. And the chiefs signed this, the chiefs of the, or the captains as they're called, of these villages signed this treaty with their X mark. Uh, uh, Based interesting on what to know. <laughs> they were thought to have understood. Yeah, I wonder what they did think to understand. The other irony of this whole treaty situation is that when the treaty makers went back to Washington, and they continued throughout, and all the way up through Humboldt County making these treaties, when they returned to Washington, they were under enormous pressure from the California government, the, the government in Washington, not to ratify the treaties. Because all of this California land 
that was going to be reservations had not been explored for gold. And the California legislature was very reluctant to give up land that they hadn't explored for gold. So the treaties were never ratified. Uh, uh, in fact, they were lost until, you know, after the 1900s. Uh, but the Indians here were never told. Vicki, so, before we get too far away, yeah. I want to ask you about uh, what thoughts might have been uh, in the minds of the people, obviously, if you know, uh, considering that their thinking is circular, their mm -hmm. time frame is, is circular as opposed to linear. So if they're going to a certain area of land with new tools and new seeds that they didn't have before, how do you think that affected uh, their view of time, their cosmology? Well, um, what happened is that um, many people were very confused by these new ways of dealing with land, for one thing. They didn't have a concept of the specific ownership of land, more of the use or, or stewardship of land. And, uh, and uh, you know, for many groups of people, they thought that they had done something wrong. Somehow, some, one, you know, one of these mythological pasts had caught up with them and they had been somehow wronged, uh, done wrong, and that this was a punishment of some sort. It was a poisoning. It was a, you know, something being visited upon them. And in 1870, an absolutely powerful religion swept through Northern California called the California Ghost Dance Religion of 1870. And this was a millennialist religion. And it, the preachers who, who came from the Paviatsu Paiute from um, Nevada came through California and came into the Pomo area and preached this religion um, saying that within a year or two all the white people would be dead and all they had to do was pray and be clean and live in an upright life. And many people, this developed into several offshoots of this religion, many, many people from this area gathered together in huge numbers, 500 to 1,000, in underground dance houses for up to a year, dancing and praying. But unfortunately, the white people didn't go away. Who were the promoters of the California ghost dance religion? Well, there were preachers, you know, in all communities. A Christian derivative? Uh, there was some Christian elements. You know, you can see in some of the symbolism, this religion was pretty much promoted by community dreamers who dreamed dance patterns, they dreamed songs, they dreamed uh, symbols that they applicate onto um, ritual uh, garb, and they uh, created these ceremonies that, or some, or some of the ghost dance songs are still sung today. So that's how they perceived it. And in terms of the seeds and so on, people were so adaptable that they quickly understood that they would have to transform their lives in order to survive. They didn't give up. Many Indians went to live on the land of ranchers who let them live there basically as tenant, tenant labor, you know, tenant farmers, except they didn't farm. They, they worked for the rancher. And whole Indian communities grew up around various ranchers. Then these Indians took the last name of the rancher. That's why we have many Indians with the same names. They weren't necessarily related they just lived on his land. Um, the other thing that happened is that um, um, they adapted by um, creating um, their own their own private property. Uh, there was a whole spate of purchases between 1878 and 1886 of Indians literally purchasing back their own land here in Mendocino County. They would raise money. They would go to the courthouse and they'd buy a piece of land. Um, the Okeo people did this, and actually they have hold, held their land since about 1886 in common, jointly, in a, as community property, probably the longest held piece of community property in California. That's the Okeo Rancheria. Right, and as a result of their 
of their desire to never be moved and to own their own property, they, of all people, are now not recognized as Indians by the United States government because they don't live, they don't have a government relationship with the, with the U.S. government. <laughs> During this time, the U.S. government um, characterized the native people of this area in somewhat disparaging ways. Digger Indians, they were called. Can you uh, read for us some of the characterizations? Well, the things I was referring to before are mainly about, um, you know, how they found um, a Mendocino Reservation um, and, and some of the other things that occurred with, um, with, with Indians. Um, uh, there were some, you know, feelings that Indians were dangerous and they were going to revolt against white people unless stern measures were taken to contain them. And this is a report from the Ukiah newspaper, Mendocino Herald, in 1861. They say, Indians, quite a stir has been made for a few days past in consequence of the detachment of soldiers having been sent up from Mendocino Reservation for the purpose of removing to that place all Indians not previously provided for by indenture bonds. Um, they were really concerned about um, protecting settlers from Indians. But every time a reservation was created, it became obvious that the Indians needed to be protected from the settlers. <laughs> uh, in Mendocino, uh, they established a reservation in 1856, and they brought to that reservation, in the terminology of the times, rounding up the Indians, driving them to the reservation, sort of all the terms used for, for livestock, and uh, incarcerated them there. Um, there was not supposed to be, because it was federal land, any private ownership. But nonetheless, various early mill owners built mills right in the center of the res reservation and began renting out the women, for example, on the reservation as uh, sort of pack horses to private business people. So the Indians there for their protection were rented out by their <laughs> keepers. <you know>? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were all kinds of uh, government uh, boondoggles going on where the, the government would provide beef for the reservation. The reservation manager would sell the beef to himself. You know, and pocket the profit. There was one in the coastal community of Fort Bragg. Yes, that was Mendocino Reservation. And Mendocino Reservation, because of these abuses that I've been talking about, became so dangerous that the government sent a garrison of troops to protect, uh, supposedly to protect the settlers from the Indians, but they ended up having to protect the Indians from the settlers. It became so notorious a place that it was called, instead of the U.S. Fort or whatever they call it, it became known as the U.S. Brothel. And uh, it was named, the fort was built there, it was named after General Braxton Bragg. Um, and um, it, uh, it, I think he was from North Carolina or South Carolina, I'm not sure. There's another Fort Bragg in one of those states. And uh, during the Civil War, these guys were all Southerners. They went off to fight for the Confederacy, <laughs> abandoned Fort Bragg. So that's where the name Fort Bragg comes from. Mendocino Reservation. Um, was a really terrible place and was, it was soon closed by the United States government and some Indians there were moved to um, uh, Round Valley. This is a letter written by a special agent for the United States Interior Department in 1858. He says about Mendocino Reservation, which went from the Noyo River north to Ten Mile River, from the ocean back to the first range of hills, said, notwithstanding its natural advantages, the reservation has not thriven 
Um, the whole place has an effete, decayed look that is most disheartening. There are unmistakable indications everywhere that whether considered as a means of civilization or purely eleemosynary, the system as tried here is a failure. The system of creating... A reservation to protect Indians. It certainly seems like it's been a <laughs> failure not only there but everywhere else. That's right. That's right. There was an intention to um, cre also create a reservation in um, the Round Valley, in the community of Covalo. Yes. That brought people from different ethnic backgrounds together. That's right. Round Valley started, uh, again, another government boondoggle. There was a reservation in Tehama County um, called Noma, Nomalaki Reservation. Now, you know what the Sacramento Valley is like. They decided to make a farm to grow food for Nomalaki Reservation all the way up in the mountains of Covalo. It was really a way to acquire land using government funds to acquire it. In any case, they established a Nomi cult farm in 1856 there, and they brought over Indians from the Chico area, Konkau Maidu. They were called Tain Indians because they had been already overrun by people in the valley to set up a reservation in Round Valley, or a farm. Then later it became, in the 1860s, an actual reservation. When Mendocino Reservation closed, they tried to move people over there. But it became, in effect, a concentration camp for Indians captured in so-called Indian wars throughout Northern California. The Round Valley the Round Reservation. Valley. The native people of Round Valley are, were called the Yuki, which is actually a word from another language called Nomalaki, or Patwin, meaning uh, stranger. But uh, the Yuki people, whose homeland it was, were suddenly forced to share their territory or their, their have as neighbors traditional enemies of them, like the Nomalaki, the Cato people from the Laytonville area, the Wailaki from um, Northern California, and so on. Well, Victoria Patterson, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question that I ask everyone, and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, the interesting book I've read lately has nothing to do with Indians. It has to do with me going on a trip to Italy. So, <laughs> Under the Tuscan Sun. And uh, actually, um, although it had wonderful descriptions of Tuscany and the food and, and wines of the area, I was a little bit annoyed with the book, which sounded like, you know, American colonials once again landing in another country and <laughs> exploiting its resources. Victoria Patterson, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Victoria Patterson is an anthropologist based in Ukiah, California, who has worked with the native Pomo people for over 30 years. The books that she recommends are Deep Valley by Bernard Aginsky and Under the Tuscan Sun by Francis Mays. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.